Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Adventure leads our master and commander into the Sahara. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I've never seen an iguana before. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm so glad to have my sidekick back so we can go on yet another adventure, as we do every week. Isn't every week an adventure, Adam? Uh, I mean, I, I guess adventures don't always have to be fun. Nope, and that's what we guarantee. It won't always be fun. But yeah. Adam and I are not the only ones here because we have a guest with us here. Uh, she is a staff writer and an editor over at FilmCred. Uh, it is Miss Hale Peralta. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We decided to invite you on because I knew you had an interest in podcasting to some degree, and uh, you decided, out of all the topics, you wanted to do this week's topic, which we're doing uh, in honor of Uncharted, I guess, coming out. I still don't believe it. No matter how many times I see Tom Holland fall out of things, I very much doubt that that movie still exists. Do you even want it to, though? Like, isn't that a better question? I mean, I don't think anyone's really wanted to, but it's happening, I guess. I think Uncharted is one of those movies like, you know, you walk in and it's like a publisher's clearhouse where they give you like a check and they're just like, we're just amazed that you even bought a ticket. Like, here's three hundred dollars. Please go and enjoy the rest of your day. The ghost of Ed McMahon gives you a giant check. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's cold where I am. Oh, uh, anyway. <laughs> but uh, you know, we're doing adventure films. And why adventure? Out of curiosity. Mostly two things. One, a lot of the other topics I was interested in, I was unfortunately out of the country, so I wasn't going to be able to have my podcast set up, and I really wanted to get on and talk with you guys. So Adventure was like the furthest day out, and I was like, yes, I'm like set up in February, fine. But also, and I've talked about it on Twitter sometimes, where it's like the fact that I am the child of immigrant parents to the United States means that like my nostalgia for American pop culture doesn't necessarily line up with a lot of like my contemporaries in my generation. So I don't have that attachment to like the Indiana Joneses and things like that. So adventure is kind of a bit of a blind spot for me. So I wanted to kind of take advantage and like sort of do some research and kind of like probe some things I had never really seen before. Yeah. Adventure is a weird subgenre because, you know, Adam and I kind of came across doing this because the Uncharted thing lined up and we're like, oh, of course, it makes perfect sense to do it. We've never done that somehow in our long uh, history with the show. And then really doing research is weird to think of like it's become sort of like a lost genre because it's Mm -hmm. become so much more compact with like, oh, it's like one slice of your average blockbuster now, and the ones that are more overtly adventure at this point are just kind of ripping off like a Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, remember last summer's Jungle Cruise and how much we oh, all loved brother. it? Remember? <laughs> we were all just swept up in the Jungle Cruise. Look, man, Dwayne the Rock Johnson as, an, as a Spaniard always wins. 
Always. <laughs> a spoiler, an immortal Spaniard. An that immortal Spaniard. Twist. Spoiler. Spoiler. Hey, Jungle uh, Cruise spoilers, please. My God. <laughs> no, I, I even though it was the highest grossing film and everyone loved it so much, and we had, remember all the Jungle Cruise memes that came out and how much everyone couldn't stop talking about it? Absolutely. Jungle Cruise fever, not to be confused with malaria. <laughs> <laughs> True, right. But um, it's weird, especially because like it feels like just a lot of adventure movies that are trying to be more of Whitley adventure ever since like two thousand three have just been really trying to chase that Pirates of the Caribbean like money at this point. It just feels like that was such a great lightning bottle that we never would have expected would have worked, and even that series of movies has been still flailing trying to like make that work to some degree adam what do you think is like the reason why adventure just doesn't work anymore well i mean the thing is you say it doesn't work anymore and i'd argue it definitely does just not in necessarily in the sense that we're thinking um yeah you know adventure movies like indiana jones uncharted things like that you know they're they're not around too much more but i'd argue pretty much every mcu movie would be considered an action adventure film um it's just not necessarily in the way we maybe want it to be but I, I think they're still probably the most successful films out there right now are adventure films, uh, 100%. You know what I love about an adventure is when I know the exact pinpoints of every single step of that adventure, like with an MCU movie. I know, but you say that, but can't you argue that you could do the same with all the ones we were just talking about, too? With all the other Pirates movies, with all the with Jungle Cruise, with Our Bad Future Today, with Uncharted just from the trailer. They all follow the same formula for the most part. It's just some really have a lot of passion and uh, panache behind it, and others don't. Well, it also probably helps that with a lot of those other movies, it usually isn't somebody who's like magical. What I kind of like about an adventure, even like Indiana Jones, where those movies do have a similar formula, there's always a bit of that danger of like, well, he is a human being, even though he's Indiana Jones. It's just that now we have super heroes who can get out of any of these like horrible situations they have so it's just kind of like oh it's an adventure with a big like immortal person even jungle cruise had that problem where it's just like oh man the rock is like an actual person no he's like an immortal spaniard dude bouncing around with emily blunt it just feels like there's less of the stakes that you have even in some like you know formulaic adventure movies of the past it still feels like it's even less suspenseful than it used to be funny that you guys brought up that like you know, um, Adam, you were saying that like MCU films could be considered adventure because when I was doing some Googling, just because I had a moment where I blanked out where I was kind of like, what does that necessarily mean? Even most of the top results that were showing up just on the Google algorithm were just every single MCU film. And I was kind of just like, it both does and doesn't. Cause for me, like adventure was always very like, and my biggest frame of reference is like the stuff that's directly mostly kind of ripping it off. So like Atlantis, uh, treasure planet, like all these like Disney, we really want boys to watch our movies type things where it's very globe trotty, usually kind of like messy and dirty and grimy. And the MCU is kind of like the most clean and neat version of it. Where something that I enjoyed so much about the good film that, we had to watch was you know an adventure is nasty it's kind of like what what you guys are talking about where it's like you know indy is just a normal person and he could get hurt or killed even and those for me are like what makes it fun it's not just sort of like the you know it's a treasure hunt but it's also like a dangerous treasure hunt which i think is what makes it fun which is where i feel the mcu kind of lacks because you know these people are locked into multi-picture deals and they're not going to die but you know the best ones are, I think, the ones that play with that sense of danger. 
Yeah, down to like at this point now, the, the that is so rare to get one of those type of movies to where I've been seeing this trailer for The Lost City, the one with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, and I don't have much interest in that movie, but at the same time I hope that makes hundreds of millions of dollars so we get more of those movies. That's not going to happen. No, nope, probably <laughs> not because people are going to be seeing Spider-Man for the 55th time, Adam. That's yeah. why. Yep. Oh, boy. Right. Let, let's go ahead and get into our movies, then, because uh, if you're new, at the end of every episode, Adam and I randomly pick a good and a bad feature that we discuss on the next episode. So last week, uh, we randomly did uh, our picking, and we ended up getting our bad feature, Sahara, which was one of Adam's choices, and then yes. uh, the good pick, uh, which is one of my choices, of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Uh, but let's get our bad feature out of the way first with Sahara. For years, I've wondered if the stories were true. And now, I finally have the proof. You found a coin. I found the coin. At the end of the Civil War, a battleship carrying a secret shipment of gold vanished without a trace. Where in the hell did you get this? On the Niger River. In Africa. You got 72 hours. I need you at the boat. Nope. I got the check. Sit down, I'll get the check. For explorer Dirk Pet and his team. This is the place. The ship should be here. The mystery that's buried with a long forgotten legend carries a threat. This thing could kill millions. No one could have imagined. Safina du Almount. That's so poetic. What's it mean? The ship of death. Great! From international best selling author Clyde Custler. Sahara. Hey! Where are we going? Hell of so Sahara came out uh, April 8th, 2005, um, and is apparently based on a bunch of books by Clive Cussler um, with this Dirk Pitt character, as played here by Matthew McConaughey. And uh, this one I hadn't seen before and was rather infamous, I guess, for being one of the huger box office bombs of its era, where it was supposed to have like an $80 million budget and then that ballooned out to like $160 million, and then it didn't do very well at all maybe arguably kind of started the destruction of the type of adventure movie we were talking about. It just isn't around anymore uh, because yeah. it was such a big flop. Uh, but Adam, this was your choice. And uh, I don't, had you seen this before? And No, I'd never seen it. I knew it by reputation only. I knew it was a big flop. I knew it was, uh, you know, just sort of notoriously formulaic. And I'm going to go ahead and say that is all very true. Uh, no, I did not like this movie. I found this movie... Uh, very, very boring. And it got to the point to where I'm watching. I'm like, wait, what is the point of any of this now? Like, is it about a boat? Is it about a disease? Is it about the water? What is happening? And uh, that was pretty much how I felt up until the end. And then, uh, yeah, this movie, uh, movie sucks. Well, I mean, maybe it's appropriate for the bad pick, but let's see if our guest disagrees. Uh, did you, uh, had you seen this before? And uh, what'd you think of it? I had never heard of this, mainly because my ultimate goal in life is to just forget Matthew McConaughey exists on any sort of spectrum or physical realm. Like he's like my sleep paralysis demon. I just, I find him very unpleasant to look at. And so when I started watching this, there was a slight moment of elation when, um, and I don't know this individual's name, but he plays the Merovingian in the Matrix movies. When he showed up as like this, this rich, like smarmy businessman, I was like, yes, 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 yes. And that was the only speck of enjoyment that I had. The rest of it, as Adam said, like I was bored out of my mind. And I was, it was one of those movies where 
I had to have Wikipedia on standby because, again, I was just like, wait a minute, babe, we started with a civil war fight and now we're in Mali. And like there was so much like confusion. And I was just like, what is happening? Why is there a warlord? What's with the eyeballs? Is this a zombie movie? What? I just and then I made the mistake of going on Letterboxd after the fact and people will not stop with like the consistent need to have this revisionist history for every movie under the sun. The amount of people on letterbox that will uphold this as like some classic that needs to get like reevaluated by the culture. It doesn't, it really doesn't. It's really, really bad. (laughs) No. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, no, this doesn't need to be revisited. I do think though, to give it anything, I think there could be a lot of fun here with uh, McConaughey and Steve Zahn sort of characters, I think if they would have leaned into that and made it more of this goofy, just straight treasure hunting movie and done something with, you know, I don't even mind the silly action or the old plane as like the windsurfing thing. or I don't mind any of that if they would have just stuck to that. But then it's like you get a Bond villain plot thrown in the middle of this. And then it just it's just... I don't think this movie really has a clear vision of the type of movie it's trying to be. Is it trying to be an action comedy? Is it trying to be a serious movie? Is it trying to make some sort of political statement? Is it trying to be like, what is this movie? It feels kind of like a movie where it came at a weird point because like for the 20 years or so prior to this movie coming out, it was so much about like, Oh, we got to rip off Indiana Jones for our adventure movies. And then this is in production around the time of like a pirates of the Caribbean where it becomes like, Oh, we have to kind of, go into that sphere where it's a lot more big and giant. So this feels like a movie that was greenlit as an Indiana Jones ripoff, but then also mutated into kind of like a Pirates ripoff. And it's this weird aberration in the middle that doesn't know quite which angle it wants to go with. Because, especially as we get to the ending where, like, it becomes, as Adam mentioned, very Bond plotty, and there's, like, a huge set piece involving, like, the like solar panels and stuff like that. I'm just like, guys, this is too much. This was just, like, a guy looking for treasure. And we've gotten way far from that. I don't know what we're doing at this point. Not to mention the weird foray into, like, African geopolitics that it decides to take, where it's like, I was just like, why? Like, the second, and the shot repeats, like, there are five different instances in the stupid movie where, like, you know, sweet angel-faced African peasants are like waving to our heroes, like as they're running alongside a truck or something. And I'm just like, dear God, that whole scene where like it's Penelope Cruz and Matthew McConaughey and Steve Zahn, and they're like standing on the boat and all of the, the, the noble tribesmen are cheering the brave white people for helping them like, like save the day. And I was just, it was deeply uncomfortable for absolutely no reason. Like, I don't understand. I would say like, it's true where like you say that like it started as an Indiana Jones ripoff and then halfway through kind of turns into a, a pirates ripoff. But the thing I thought of the most watching this was the mummy. Yeah. Especially with the whole, like the dynamic between the three leads they're trying to like force where it's just like, you're not, you're not Brendan Fraser and, and Rachel Weiss. Like you're not, and it's okay, but you need to stop pretending you are. Cause it's sad. And now I just wish I was watching The Mummy. No, but didn't you love the scintillating chemistry between Penelope Cruz and Matthew McConaughey? Goodness which, which is so odd because they were like an item making while making this movie or became an item while making this movie. And I didn't for one second. Like, nah, there might have been a few like stolen looks. You're like, ah, oh, maybe there's something there. But I just did not translate at all. 
at all. I much preferred the bromance element of it to this forced. That's one thing. Why do we got to do that? Why does that have to be in every single one of these movies? A sort of uptight love interest who, you know, lets loose because the guy's such a reckless cannon and he flies by the seat of his own pants. So through him, she learns to enjoy her career and blah, blah, blah. It's just such dumb bullshit and yes the white american savior shit in this movie is out of control it is absolutely out of control and uh, oh yeah rain wilson's there too right as like the third wheel to like the bromance chemistry with like steve zahn and matthew mcconaughey we're just like do, do you want me to leave okay i'll leave and he literally leaves like from that group halfway through the movie <laughs> which i'm sure he left to go shoot the office pilot which is also really weird considering this came out like just two weeks after the office premiered so I'm sure Rain Wilson's just like, I don't know if this NBC show's gonna like work itself out, guys, but I've still got the Sahara sequel. I'm sure gonna be involved in that, baby. That's gonna totally Oh yeah, happen. wasn't wasn't there planned to be like at least three of these? Well, yeah, because the Dirk Pitt character has like been in a bunch of novels, and yeah. I'm sure they planned on like doing a bunch of those. But obviously, given how much the weird inflation happened with the budget, which is like, there's so many weird things about. It. Apparently, like a dossier came out where like they uh, bribed out the Moroccan government, and also we were paying like Penelope Cruz's hairstylist like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I was like gonna that. say. On Wikipedia, there was a line that got like no further context where it said that like he was accused of breaking international law. And I said, hold on a minute. What? And then I kept looking and the the stuff about the lawsuit was just about like the inflated budget. And I'm like, can we get back to the like international law of it all? Can I can I know about that? Like there, there's a much more interesting adventure please. movie about the production of Sahara than Sahara. Itself. Precisely. Like I would very much watch like some weird Adam McKay movie about the production of this movie. Like and I don't even like Adam McKay, but like my God, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird. But I, I guess to go back to the Matthew McConaughey of it all, you said you weren't a fan of Mr. McConaughey uh necessarily. What is exemplified maybe here that makes you just not like him as much as a star. He has this thing where it feels like, and and it was funny. I very recently watched contact all the way through for the first time. That was a staple. Like my dad fell asleep on the couch on a Sunday afternoon type of movie. So I had never actually seen the full thing. And I had the same issue there that I have here where it's like, he carries himself as if he knows that we're supposed to think he's like hot and cool and charismatic. I don't know if that makes sense, but instead oh, that's of that's a hundred percent accurate. That is pretty much his appeal, honestly. <laughs> to some sense. people, yeah. It's it's not like he is suave or he is charismatic. It's that he knows that that's his, you know what I mean? Like, it's just very calculated. It's very, and it's not even in like a The Rock way where The Rock is trying to be the most positive thing. Like, I can't, like The Rock irritates me for similar reasons because it's very polished and very like, this is how I'm supposed to present myself. But at least The Rock is doing it with like this big gleaming smile on his face where I'm like, at least, you know, whatever. He seems like he'll give you a pat on the back and buy you a beer. And like, he seems like a good time. But Matthew McConaughey is just so smug. Yeah, sure. It's not like I believe him in any other capacity is like, you know, why wouldn't he be like some swashbuckling rogue? But I'm also just like, I just want to punch you in the face. Because I'm like, you're not that cool. Like you scuba dive for a living. It's not that serious. Why can't they ever give Matthew McConaughey a decent dye job in movies? Like, right. his hair is so ridiculous, the dye line, and then the eyebrows. He's never just 
Matthew McConaughey, like he's always got black hair or dark brown hair or sometimes black hair and blonde eyebrows. Interstellar. I don't understand. What, what, why? What is the point? It doesn't make him look any better. It makes it look like he's a dude, exactly what you're saying, trying to be like, look how fucking cool I am. You're like, ugh. Well, I, I think there are certain movies where that works. I think it's really in more grounded context, like, say, A Dazed and Confused, where he's also a side character. Or even in, like, the McConaughey, she had him, like, popping up in, like, A Wolf of Wall Street or stuff like that. Where it's like, oh, hey, I'm the coolest, like, basically the coolest redneck in the small redneck community. I'm the hottest one. To where that technically kind of works for him. And there's a bit of a sleaziness understood with that. But this is around the time when he was like starting to get out of whatever like praise he was getting for like his earlier appearances, like in contact or a time to kill, and was becoming full on like I think this is the same year as like Failure to Launch, where he just goes into full on rom com mode, just like everyone knows I'm cool and I get a lady. So I'm just it's all great, it's all good, it's all great, brother. <laughs> and I think like this is the exact period where I stop really giving much of any attention to McConaughey because I agree that this is where it feels that it's most sort of like phony and the rock esque where he's got like, look, I got the big smile. Everybody would love me necessarily, but it's just like, no, you seem like a dude who just spends way too much time on the beach. And I don't want to hang around you as like my action adventure hero guy. And again, I thought of the mummy a lot while watching this. And even with someone like Brendan Fraser in that movie where like, he indicates like like there's an assuredness, but there's also like this air of like, you know, I I'm also like going to defer, for instance, like the whole dynamic with like Rachel Weisz, like the reason they have that fun chemistry is because she's not like what Benedict Cruz is in this movie. She, like Rachel Weisz and the mummy is not this like uptight person that Brenda needs to draw out of her shell. She is kind of crazy in a similar way she's just a little more like bookish and the fun thing is like watching their weird energy kind of bounce off each other because they're both kind of a little unhinged whereas in this it's just like like when when that scene oh my god it just stuck out to me because it just made my skin crawl when he's like i know a girl in monterey and she's got a house and she's never there and he kind of just takes it as a given that like they're gonna hook up by the end and i'm just like can you at least flirt a little try maybe be like charming and not just assume it feels like he's going to look directly at the camera and be like, and I'm a guy in a movie. So, you know, I'm going to get the girl by the end. Like that's what his air is. It's yeah. just ugh. right. And Penelope Cruz doesn't help that She's just kind of like slotted into being that girl and not having much yep. other chemistry or like actual like individuality or character beyond like, I am a doctor for the WHO and therefore I'm here to basically unveil this disease plot that you mentioned where people turn into like, like fish flaky zombie creatures for some reason and it, like just have the weird like back and forth with Glenn Turman who of course the moment he showed him just like I wonder which one of these main characters is gonna die yeah, first gee. Hmm, I wonder. oh my god and you know th that's the thing too and I think you might be onto something there Hale uh, the thing is about the mummy and even the first pirates and even Indiana Jones and things like that they're all all the main guys are kind of fuck ups in those movies too like they they just sort of succeed by sheer dumb luck sometimes or just mm -hmm. just straightforward like bullheadedness and this you know he's just sort of got it all figured out all the time and it, it's hard to like get behind a guy like that like the, it's like it, there's no real stakes there because you know he's going to get out of it where at least in like you know like i said in the mommy brendan fraser gets the shit kicked out of him all the time he's he's constantly like out of his element indiana jones always got beat up uh, you know, Jack Sparrow is a moron. It, it's just, you. It, there's no vulnerability to this character. Um, so you don't really care. 
Yeah, all the vulnerability is really just put onto Steve Zahn, which is, I think, the danger you sometimes have with these adventure movies, is you have the hero who's completely straight-laced and can get through anything, and then you got his buddy who's bumbling, just like, oh man, what am I gonna do? Which Steve Zahn was just in that mode at this time, which is that that's all he was getting, was these kind of roles. And it's such a bummer, because I would, like, in theory, I think he could be fun, but the trouble is, one, that chemistry with McConaughey, and two, more importantly, for this big action-adventure movie, um, it's got some of the best examples of terrible editing for a major studio American movie. Like, any of the action scenes are just chopped to shit. You can barely tell what's going on. Like, during the big boat chase, or during most any of these big action sequences, like, I don't even know where one person is in the scene anymore, because it's so heavily cut up. The most egregious example was, like, when they're at that solar plant, I just, at that moment, my eyes glazed over. I was playing a game on my phone. I was checking emails. I was like, I don't understand. Like, I was done. I was checked out. Like, nasty. Because at at that point, it's just like, the movie doesn't help itself because it's a solar plant. So, like, the bright, gleaming sun is bouncing off of every surface. And I can't even see. Like, it hurts my eyes to look at. So, it's just like what are we doing here? Like, he's like hanging off of the edge of a building. And at that point, I'm just like, just die, just fall off. Like, I don't, I'm done with this. Yeah. Especially when like, like we said, like this starts off a bit more as like a grounded, like, Oh, he's going to be on a boat. And like the first big action set pieces, them on a boat getting shot up by a bunch of guys who are trying to like stop them basically, which in theory could be fun. But then as we go along, each set pieces to expand even further to the point of just ridiculousness. And this is made by Breck Eisner, son of Michael Eisner, previous guy who ran Disney. Uh, and we've talked about um, his remake of The Crazies. And the biggest problem with that movie is it's mostly kind of like grounded as a horror action movie until the very end there's like a nuclear bomb explosion. It's like, what if that nuclear bomb explosion was the whole like second half of the movie, basically? <laughs> because it gets just so dumb and ridiculous to the point where it's just like, well, this guy, in theory, was an actual person, so I don't really give that much of a shit. Like, oh, he's able to survive a solar panel thing to destroy toxic waste or whatever the fuck is going on yeah and the action scenes i mean even the boat one carries on a little too long but yeah they get more outlandish and just last forever too to where any excitement that you might get out of it quickly is whittled down just by how much there is like the car chase scene with the helicopter like oh oh God, it takes forever. And then just, I love that they just so happen to find that fucking boat he's looking for. And blah, 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 blah. It gets so outlandish and outrageous that I, I'm right there with you. I was tuning out like 100%. I kept like hitting the pause button like to see how much longer I had to go with this movie. It's entirely too long. If this, uh, this movie did not need to be over two hours long. No, and what do you think sort of in this movie really just sort of like killed the adventure genre? Like, given how big a budget this was and how much it inflated, like, do you think like this was responsible for killing the genre as it was at that time? I don't think it's solely responsible, mainly because like, who know, who remembers that this movie exists? You know what I mean? Like, Sahara is a very like, which again, like another thing, why is it called that? They don't even address there in Mali, the whole, but that's besides the point. I think it's more just emblematic of a thing that we continue to see, which is that like people take for granted 
the character work that goes into like those fun adventure classics like what we were talking about with like the mummy or with indiana jones like there's cool action beats to be sure but people also remember like fun like character things they remember like little interactions they remember like funny like state like you know oh benny you're on the wrong side of the river and things like that like you know like that's the stuff that's fun and i and i feel like you know the focus is on like bombast and like the action and that's only part of it like the adventure is only as fun as like the people that you're on the adventure with if the people you're on the adventure with are unbearable you're not gonna have fun no matter how much you know shiny flashy things they throw at you on the screen right that's part of the charm with like indiana jones's introduction is this amazing sequence where he's able to escape a giant boulder and stuff like that and the punctuation point is him being scared of snakes so it's like, oh, there is a humanity to him because he's like fearful of something we experience every day. Just like, oh my God, it's a snake. It's a human fear. As opposed to Matthew McConaughey, who, as you mentioned, just like, nah, I don't got nothing to worry about. I'm going to get the girl and I'm going to survive solar blasts or whatever. I'm good. Yeah, no, it's like these like adventures are, are which, you know, we'll get into with, with the second movie. Like they're they're human stories like you're, it's kind of like a fun bedtime story or something where like you want to kind of put yourself in that position like what would it be like if i was like the super cool guy but he's not just a super cool guy which is what these things kind of forget like it's this big focus on like very choreographed spectacle or in this case super poorly choreographed and it's just i feel like that's where that's where they fail yeah no i agree they become action porn it becomes just like you said, just look how much shiny stuff explosions we got. And these guys are attractive. So you want them to succeed. And yeah, there, there is none of those character beats. There is none of that stuff. And, and I don't think this like single handedly brought down the adventures sort of genre of films, but it definitely probably had a hand in it uh, mainly because of the budget and the fact that it is based on, you know, source material that there are fans of and everything. And even with all of that and star power, it still failed. You know, at that rate, if something like this can fail, uh, then it becomes too much of a risk. You know, if it's not a g- guaranteed winner, they're not going to do it anymore. And, uh, you know, this could have been, a, like I said, this could have been a fun little movie. It, it really, really could have. If there was more chemistry, if there was more, like I said, even wacky comedy, like they do in The Mummy with certain scenes and other and pirates and things like that. Uh, it just, there's there's one real bit with the the plane that they windsurf across and then that's kind of it the rest is just you don't care uh, and mainly because there's like three major plots going on at one time there's the guy with the water the merovingian and then there's the you know the disease that's spreading that the sort of warlord knows about and then there's the hunt for this treasure oh but then there's also William H. macy and delray lindo and they're back and forth Oh, yeah. By the way, we forgot to mention they're in this movie, by the way. Two great actors yeah. who just pop up yep. to get a paycheck. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, it's a hundred. But you know what? Good for them. I mean, in William H. Macy's case, oh, yeah, that's funny. going to like that's going to like bribing UCLA to let his daughter in or whatever. But in Delroy <laughs> Lindo's case, absolutely. So get your bag. Absolutely. Like, go ahead. He, he kills the Merovingian by the end. Have fun. Go ahead. That paid for like, <laughs> do you, you know, a summer home, maybe a boat. Who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess we should sort of wind down here. Adam, you pretty much had final thoughts, unless you have anything else to add about Sahara. <laughs> uh, just that the fact that when the Merovingian shows up on screen in the very, like, sort of first five minutes, was there any doubt in anybody's mind that he's the villain? Like, instantly? Like, oh, yeah, he's in on it. Oh, and big ups to the. It's just the problem is it, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen by any means. Uh, it's not even the worst adventure movie I've seen. But it's so ultimately forgettable. Like, 
in six months, I'm not going to remember a single plot point in this movie. Other than that, there was like a ton of them, and none of them gelled together. Well, uh, Hale, anything to add for final thoughts? I was just going to say, like, when Adam said, like, when, when the Merovingian shows up and you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's the villain. I think the fact that we can't remember the guy's name and that we all just kind of call him the Merovingian and everybody knows who we're talking about indicates that that poor man's reputation is just the jerk and everything, which is a little funny. But no, yeah, same same thing. I mean, I was just kind of baffled by, like, how aggressively, like, because it's, it's not even that it's, like, mediocre. It's that, like... It fumbles so incredibly hard. The fact that you have to sit there and be like, right, so there's this this Mali warlord who is deliberately poisoning the water system because it makes money and he's exploiting the fact that people forget about Africa. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is way too much table setting for a, a treasure hunt or whatever. And that that may be why it sticks out in my head a little bit more. Like, I'll just kind of turn to people and be like, you know, there's this crazy movie that exists, but you don't have to watch it because it's super boring. It's not even fun, bad. But yeah, ultimately, it made me want to rewatch The Mummy. So that's probably what I'm going to do this weekend. <laughs> but yeah, not right. fun. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, echo everything here. I'll just shout out Lambert Wilson is that man's name. Someone needs to remember that name, Lambert Wilson. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Merv. <laughs> Merv, sorry, Merv. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I agree with everything. Also, another person who was wasted, Lenny James, as that actual warlord, who's been great in other things. I'm glad he's eating those Walking Dead paychecks. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, he, amongst a lot of other great people, are just kind of wasted in whatever the hell this movie was. Uh, but let's go ahead and get to our good movie, which we're, we've been chomping at the bit to talk about, uh, rightly so. We are talking about a master... And Commander, the far side of the world. And he's like, reggaeton foghorns, like, meow, 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 like. <laughs> Two feet six inches, sir. The men would follow you anywhere. As a friend, I would say that we should have turned back weeks ago. It's leadership they want. Strength. Find that within yourself, and you will earn their respect. Board, you'll take him out of the ship. Take him out of the ship. Thank you, sir. For home and for the prize! Hello! Stay off to us. Let's fly! So, uh, Master and Commander, uh, this came out in November. 14th, 2003, from director, co-writer Peter Weir, also based on a series of novels from Mr. Patrick O'Brien, and this was a movie where I hadn't seen it before this, and I had remembered it coming out, though, because it was the same year, just a couple months after Pirates of the Caribbean had come out, and had wowed me as a youth, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is so great, and I was like, oh, another shit movie, but they're all in, like, naval uniforms? I don't know, it doesn't really interest me that much, and it... I'd heard, though, from so many people, like, oh, this is so great, I wish we'd gotten a sequel to continue these characters. And I'm like, oh, I should see it at some point. And now was that point, and um, I'm so dumb. I should have seen this a long time ago, because this movie's fucking excellent. And it's so great. <laughs> and I totally get the hype now. I know, Adam, you had seen this before. And uh, you kept praising me for merely picking it when I told you this is what we were going to do. I've seen this movie probably 
oh man, five, six times at this point, if not more. Um, I saw us at the show uh, and for a very shallow reason. I saw us at the show and because the music that played during one of the trailers, if not the main trailer, was the same music from the Dune miniseries. Uh, where you tie that in. So obviously I was like, well, they, at least they pick good music. So I had to go see it. And uh, yeah, I instantly fell in love with this movie. Hands down, probably my favorite Russell Crowe. Uh, it's easily one of my favorite Paul Bettany's. Um, it's probably my ba- favorite sort of like sword and scabbard ship movie. Uh, I, I just, I think it's fucking just absolutely perfect portrayal of, you know, sense of duty to sense of sort of morality to sense of, you know, legacy to, I mean, it's just, this movie is just, this movie don't fuck around, man. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. Well, Hale, um, I'm curious, what's your relationship with this movie? Had you seen it before or whatever? And it, it seemed from some of your earlier comments you might have enjoyed it, but please uh, elaborate. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I'm clearly the youngest one here. I was like maybe three when this movie came out, but um, it was one of those that like I heard about it a lot, especially like the older I got, the more into like film I got. And it was one of those things where especially um, there's this other podcast that I'm a huge fan of um, Blank Check. And one of the co-hosts of Blank Check, like sw- like he's constantly talking about this movie and he loves it so much. And I, it, again, like Thomas, it was one of those movies that like was kind of always on my list, but I never got around to it. But I love ships. I love like I mean, I'm, I'm from the Caribbean, so like I love the ocean. And when I sat down to watch this, it was like, oh, my God, I love a good boat movie like anything that just takes me through like the geography of but like that first opening like battle scene where they're going all the way top to bottom and they're just showing you everything all the hammocks where everybody's sleeping and the little holes for the cannons all that stuff I was just like yes 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 like inject it into my veins I love this stuff um I loved it it was so much fun it flew right by when I finally got towards the end I had to pause it to go do something I was like wait a minute there's only that much left like I just I absolutely loved it I'm so annoyed I hadn't seen this sooner but yeah it was a great dude's rock like that this is like peak like dude's rock movie for me like this is joining the canon with like another round and I don't know like I just got what a good movie. What a good time. It's a great dude's rock cinema confirmed. Yes, especially like that friendship between Crow and Betney is so perfect throughout the whole movie. Because like there's such a great contrast where Crow is so much more about like, no, I have to like, you know, I, I love the sea. I love my ship. I love my crew. But at the same time, I have to stick to my mission of trying to catch this ghost ship that's facing us versus Paul Bettany is just like, well, I don't know. I, I also love the men in our crew and that's where like, they sort of have the mutual respect. It's like, they really love the people on their crew and each other included, but he's just like, but I, I love the idea of like exploring the world out there and actually going to like the Galapagos and shit like that. And you can see how they're two very different men, but how they do respect each other and really love each other down to their fucking jam sessions. I would watch a whole movie of their fucking jam sessions where they're just rocking out on, like, the violin and all that shit. Like, fuck yeah, yes. I, this is their, so good. I want to live in this. Or the dinners with the puns. So good. Oh, my so God. Good. I died. I I was so mad at how hard that made me laugh. <laughs> like, I kept repeating it to myself, just puttering around my house. 
the lesser of two weevils. And it also helps that Russell Crowe sells that joke. He laughs his ass off when he tells it. Like he could barely get the words out. He's choking on the on the punchline. He yeah. dissolves like a fifth grader telling a yo mama joke at the lunch table, and I am just <laughs> obsessed with it. Like it's so good. Everybody in this is so good. There's so many like stalwart British faces that like those guys. Like I can never. I'm so bad with like British dudes' names. But there were so many faces that every time they popped up, I was like, hey, you, like an old buddy. I was so happy. Billy Boyd shows up. You're like, of oh, course. hey, <laughs> great. Peregrine Duke. Um, but um, the scene that really does it for me, man, is when, uh, you know, Paul Bettany's down in his quarters, you know, and he's telling him, like, you know, I really don't think you need to lash him and blah, 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 blah. blah. And uh, Russell Crowe gives that whole speech. I'm like, you know, no, you have to lead them and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, and it's just so. And then they're watching the lashing happening. And Russell Crowe, you can tell, is being so, like, stalwart. And he's the captain. But you can just see it behind his eyes that he's like, this is fucked. But Paul Bettany, man. Ah, that surgery scene. Oh my god! Some harrowing ass shit, man. Oh my god! This this movie is so great for what it doesn't show. It reminded me of like of um old, which you have both of you seen that? Yes. Oh yeah, mid-sized sedan, baby. Yeah, but the whole tumor scene where it's playing with like, and obviously old is much more heightened or whatever. This one's a lot more grimy and realistic, but still, like it's you know what it doesn't show you that the scene with the amputation with the little boy, where whose name I forget, but like these those moments and even the surgery scene, you're not really seeing much of it the whole time. You're kind of almost in like Paul Bettany POV where you're just kind of kind of seeing it like in the corner of the mirror. But really what you're what's guiding that scene is everybody else's faces and they're doing some great like squeamish face acting. Right. And I love the fact also that it's so like in that sequence you're talking about with the amputation, you would figure like, oh, this is going to go on for a while. There's going to be like bone cracking sounds, all this horrible stuff. But it's so quick. It just shows that, like, the precision that Paul Bettany has, and then ultimately just being like, well, you're the, one of the bravest patients I've ever had, it instantaneously, like, warms your heart after you've just seen, like, a young boy get his arm amputated, but you just feel like that weird emotional roller coaster, like, oh my god, it's happening, oh wait, it happened, and oh, you're being very nice to this young boy, it really just immerses you in those, like, very quick change of pace feelings, because you're on a ship, shit's gotta, like, get done, you gotta, like, get past this and keep going. I think it really gets you into that kind of like almost stream of consciousness. Yeah, it's really good at like even something as simple as like, which is a little trick that when I noticed it, I was like, "Ugh, let me see like how long it takes me to get sick of it. But I never did. The fact that the, the camera is constantly just swaying with the ship. And it's just like such a good little detail because it's it's just enough to where you notice it. But by like the halfway point you barely really notice it unless there's like scenes that change where like they're on the shore or like whatever but i love just those little d i just love being on a boat like i just i love that stuff like you know titanic and and even like the pirates movies like i just love when it's just like dudes on boats i love that stuff jungle cruise jungle cruise (laughs) 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 even like a moment that i expected was gonna be which it's so funny the way there's a line in this movie that describes like movie perfectly where when Russell Crowe's character is telling the story about like the famous uh, sailor that he worked, that he like served with. And he said that like his love of country kept him warm. And he says that comment where he's like, 
hearing it from any other man and you'd be like, Ugh, how silly or whatever. And that is literally just how I feel about this movie. So much of what happens here, I feel like any other movie, any other actors, and you'd kind of be like, I don't know, this is just extra. But with this, it's just like, it's just great. Everybody's like doing such great work and it's just, it looks great. And it sounds great. And it's just so good. Yeah, shout out to it. One for both sound editing and cinematography at the Oscars, which especially in a year where like that was the Return of the King year, where it's just like, fuck everything else. Everything uh-huh. goes to Return of the King. So I can get a couple of awards like that's pretty impressive. But yeah, it works because, yeah, the sound editing is so good, especially just the small details of like, and this is also visual, obviously, but the fact that they have to set up Russell Crowe's office wall every time they're downstairs and have to like yeah. put together. I love that detail. You never think about that, but it's like, oh yeah, of course they have to do that because they can't have that place completely like started off the entire day. It has to be like his office at night only. And I just love small details like that that, like Hale said, like really immerse you in this environment where it's just like, if yeah, you're living on the ship with these guys in this realistic looking ship that sometimes is an actual huge large scale ship, sometimes it's like really indistinguishable models from Weta that just like edit together so perfectly. It's it's just astonishing how much you're just really immersed in this environment yeah and even little subtle things like when they're going through and there's snow on the ship and they're panning by the ship and you see some of them having a snowball fight real quick yes. and things like that you just get the real sense of camaraderie between the crew uh and thomas i want to ask you uh, correct me if I'm wrong but genuinely you're rather hot and cold on russell crowe right um, I mean, I I guess so. I, I just, with, with the, the Russell Crowe persona, I think I kind of like it better when he leans into more of, like, the genre-y aspects like this as opposed to, like, a gladiator or super mm-hmm. stone-faced. Like, stone-faced Crowe, I'm just, like, so checked out as opposed to this guy who's just, like, on the ship who's the leader and commander but also has, like, a jovial sensibility to him. Just like, fuck yeah, this is my Crowe. Like, this or oh, yeah, he's even great. as of recently with, like, Unhinged, just like, fuck yeah, that's crazy <laughs> Russell Crowe. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> There's no question that he is the captain of the ship. There's no que- he sort of commands that, that performance. Like he's just 100% you get why these guys are behind him. I don't know if it's because of his beautiful hair or it's just the way he like you said can show sort of this real sense of command but also compassion and also you know making these guys go through these horrible drills to shoot the cannons but he's constantly like, you know good job, good job, and hey, more extra rational grog for you, Ben, and all that stuff. Like, he's just, you get 100% why these guys would follow him to wherever he needs to go, even to the end point of the film, to where he's not going to give up. He's not going to give up getting this captain, and Paul Benny, unfortunately, reluctantly, now has to go with him on this other trip, instead of getting to do what he wants to do, because it's all for Russell Crowe's sense of duty. And it, it's just a, such a really cool way to end it. But even then, like, how there was the earlier point where him and Benny are, like, arguing with each other, but, like, no, we can't go to the Galapagos, we have to do this, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then it's not until, like, he's been hit and he actually has done something so brave, Bettany, that he has to do, like, the surgery by himself. And then Crowe just, like, kind of tosses off just like, oh, yeah, we'll stay here for about a week, you know, we gotta get everybody together, and plus, you know, you could probably go gallivant around and find your your creatures or whatever. It's this really beautiful moment where it's just like, oh, this is so touching, these two buddies who were at odds with each other, now he's able to, like, give Paul Bettany this thing, just like, ah, name a prickly rock after me, or something like that, just like, oh, perfect. It's like, they all said, dude's rock, and this is the best example of dude's rock. Paul Bettany is so good at playing this like tenderness, which is what makes him especially like, like I, I 
when I was younger and I was like getting really into like Marvel comics, I hated Vision. I really did not like him. And Vision in the MCU is honestly one of my favorite characters because Paul Bettany has this like vulnerability to him that doesn't irritate me. This quiet dignity when when he comes to Russell Crowe and he's kind of like, you made me a promise. And it's kind of like, yeah, buddy. He did. I'm so sorry. Like, I want you to go look at the iguanas too. Like, it was just this moment where, like, I don't know, like, it's not, it doesn't, it's not like contrived at all. You can gen, because the whole movie has just kind of been setting up with you that, like, there's this deep bond between these two guys. So, like, you can tell that, like, when he reneges on this promise and he's kind of like waving him away. You could tell that it like it genuinely cuts deep when he's like, we don't have time for your hobbies, guy. And it's like, ow, like, don't say that. Right. Like, but I also love the sort of resolve of that. Like Thomas brought up when he's like, you know, Paul Bunny's like, please tell me this. All this wasn't for me. I, I don't know how to thank you. And Russell Crowe's response is like, posh, it's not for you. <laughs> like he just, no. When he says so when good. he says name a name a shrub after me. Oh, yeah, I no. died. I had yes. to pause to like laugh, cry. I was just like these dudes man and how well that's reciprocated by Bettany when he discovers the ship on the other side of the island he's like oh fuck I have to like abandon this and like the, he has to like let go of the iguanas and all these other things he was gonna carry as a specimen it's just like you know how much that hurts that dude but he has to because like it's for the good of everybody else and I have to keep this going because the movie's also established so well like the sort of uh, domino effect of when people get screwed over with like other people mm-hmm. on the ship like there's the the two guys who end up being like oh hey these are the specs of the ship that we're facing off against great give them some rum rations later on one of those guys is the guy that goes overboard and his buddy has to see as they have to abandon that guy for the safety of everyone else on the ship and that resolves into like him being so resentful of like the higher up guys one of which is like the guy who like he bumps into and the whipping happens and that one dude commits suicide just it establishes so perfectly like if everyone's not on the same page she gets fucked up and people die sometimes on their own hands sometimes because like we can't do much for them after a certain point we have to save everybody else it does such a great job of establishing all that so when the Bettany and Crow relationship ends up getting like a sort of tit for tat about like oh I'll give you this chance but I have to like remove this chance so we can help you guys out it establishes so much that there needs to be a balance between everybody on the ship and when that little boy gives him that beetle Get the fuck out of here. That's such a great scene. It's so good. Like, you could tell Paul Bettany's about to fucking cry in that scene, dude. It's so, so good. And, yeah, he he's just has this such sense of warmth and compassion to him where he genuinely, genuinely not only cares for Jack, but everyone on the ship. He just wants everyone to be okay and everyone to get through it and everyone to survive and it's just it's just oh god i love this movie so much i love this movie this is one of those movies where i look at paul bettany and like i had a moment when when he was when he became vision i kind of had a weird paul bettany stand moment when i was like 15 or whatever and i have the and i, I it's a thought that happens to me like where i'm just like what happened to you buddy because he's like really good and he doesn't do enough work like you know what i mean legion and priest happened if i, if I had to pick well, <laughs> I, well I think the thing it's kind of weird because this is like the the other movie that they were in besides a beautiful mind with him and a bad movie yes 100 <laughs> but the Sorry, weird thing just... is like that movie is the weird divergent point where like crow became a huge massive star with like the combination of that and gladiator and then paul benny just became like character actor dude who's just like well i'm gonna keep scrounging through all this 
but you know, I'm, sure. I'm going to keep working, and that dude keeps working. And he's also married to Jennifer Connelly, so good on him, you know? Then he he pops up in Inkheart, which, oh my God, if there was ever something that formed my personality more than, than Inkheart. But like, he pops up in these things where I'm just like, well, I mean, and he he has talked about how like, when he got the role to play Vision, he was like at his wits end in Hollywood. His agent had just like dumped him, which is like this super sad article that I remember reading. But I'm just like, you're really good. I don't understand how this happened. Yeah. And he, he especially when you see him in this movie, it's just like so like he so deserved a better career after this point. Was but he nominated feel- for Best Supporting Actor? Because if he wasn't. I'm oh, for this movie, no. I'm, commit I'm a felony. No. Jesus. <laughs> well, which one are you going to do? Are you going to pull a tag off a mattress? Come on, do something rebellious. <laughs> um, but but no, I mean, it is it is a shame that, like, you know, him and even some, like, the other people, like, what I love about this movie is how well cast it is. I think that's a real asset to Peter Weir as a, a, a director. When you From everything like the Truman Show or this or even Dead Poets, like, there is no small role. Every actor, like, makes an impression. Even if you don't recognize that dude's, like, character name, they make a good impression. Like, I love the big lunk dude who, during, like, the big surgery scene, is holding the mirror and he just, like, is averse to the blood. Just like, oh, I can't look. And later on, he's carrying Paul Bettany around and shit like that. We're just like, that dude doesn't have a lot of lines or whatever. I'm just like, oh, I love that guy. He's so great on the ship, and he plays such an integral role, clearly. Like, I don't know who that fucker's name is, but he's great. And that's the thing, even, like, the little boy who is missing the arm, everybody else, like, you have such compassion for every single member of that ship, just from, like, the way those actors portray these roles that could just be thankless. Everybody is, like, makes an impact to you. So when the big shit goes down with the ship, you're concerned. We're like, oh, fuck, not the one bureaucratic guy who was just like, no, we can't do this. He gets shot in the head. No, not Oh, my God, guy. yeah, like, shot nasty. Yeah. I got, I, I, even the kids are really good in this, which is always, like, kind of hit or miss with, with little boys and little girls and things. But the kids in this are really good. Like, they're not whiny. They're not annoying. They're just, they're really good. I like that they kind of they're they're nice to these boys. They don't shield them from from like the responsibilities. They are a part of the crew, same as everybody else. But there is just this like delicacy that they treat these kids with. That scene where Crow gives him the fucking book is so good. It's like, I heard you were fallen to reading. Oh, and I was actually a part of this battle. If you go to page 123, I believe I was part of this one. It's just like, oh, it's so it's so endearing. We're like, yeah, he, they're not shielding these kids. They're not like trying to completely guard them because like, no, you're a part of the crew. But at the same time, you're they're fully invested in just like, well, we want you to still have like fun and you're a part of everything. Like even there's like I, I don't know if it's that kid or some other kid that like it's just a part of like the big dinner scene. There's like all these adult ass men, just like some little boy who's like drinking meat or whatever, just like, yeah, have not participate. What the <laughs> fuck ever? There's no kids table here. Everybody's a part of the table. <laughs> the, I don't know. There's just like it's weird to call something like this delicate, but there's so much like so many of these little small character beats that you wouldn't really expect from like this grand sweeping epic. I really like to, it's a small thing, but like you'd never see the Frenchmen. There's no moment where you cut to the, the other boat until they've boarded that boat. You are firmly just a member of this crew, which I think really adds to just like the experience of it, which just makes me wish that we had gotten like a sequel and stuff. Not that everything needs to be a franchise, but I want to be on a boat with these guys for longer. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. There, there's no, you know, uh, up until the sort of the one that you don't know, but there's no real face to face with him and the other captain. Like, there's no like, you know, give me your terms and blah, 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 blah. There's none of that. And I really appreciated that, too. I didn't want to sort of come across a mustache twirling villain. You know, it could have very easily been 
the Merovingian again, that type of character. <laughs> and and it wasn't. He he's virtually faceless up until like thirty seconds at the end, and you you know our character that we're following doesn't even know it's him. And uh, yeah, I really really appreciated that too. Yeah, I, I like the fact that it almost feels like Steven Spielberg's duel, where it's just this massive ship that's coming. But I, I like the fact that it's just like there's it is a faceless entity that just keeps popping yes. up. It is almost like the shark in Jaws. It adds to this cool element where I love the way they and, you know, these are English soldiers and they are, you know, they're Christian or whatever. I don't remember what denomination English people. I don't know. They're Protestant. I know that much. But I like that there's this weird sort of mysticism that the ocean lends to like when you set things on the ocean, it's just like. The ocean is this, va- it might as well be another world for as much as we know about it. So I love when movies set in like the sea kind of lean into that mysticism. There's that whole thing where like Mr. Hollum or Holland, whatever his name is, that he's the Jonah and all the, all the crew can't really stand him. And there is kind of, and well, there's even that moment where um, Russell Crowe, like he tells Paul Bettany, he's like, I can't blame the crew. Like nobody tolerates Jonah. And Paul Bettany's like, oh my God, you think he's a curse too? And it's like, yeah, like it's the ocean. Like things get weird out here. Yeah, particularly Crowe's response of just like, not everything is in a book. Yeah, and it's and I like that they kind of play with that where sure enough, the second he kills himself, the tide turns, you know, the rains fall and the wind picks up and everything. And it's like, you know, is it causality? Is it just this weird coincidence? The movie never explains it. But then also the ghost, the fact that the is it the cook? No, it's that guy. Oh my god, I was about to say, I forgot. Um, when Paul Bettany like puts a coin in some guy's head to like repair his skull or something like that oh my god that's so cool i love that so much i love that everyone's gathered around too like this is the only entertainment they get is a horrible surgery (laughs) even the guy that that and he shoes them away just to kind of get a closer look himself i'm obsessed with that but like that guy throughout the whole movie he's kind of like you know he's your old guy like nattering on about weirdness but I like that he's kind of like the weird mystical guy. Like he'll say like that ship's going to send us all to hell and that ship's a ghost ship and all these things. And he is right. Cause it's like, it's almost like captain Ahab and then his white whale where it's like, is this even worth it at the end? And how much of this is even real? And it's just oh, so cool. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the big bummer for like why this movie, I think despite doing decently well, like it, why it didn't have a franchise is since it just came after pirates of the Caribbean, which I think is a, great fun movie but also so much more overt about like no there are like these mysterious creatures and there's like actual like dark magic or whatever and we see yeah, skeleton pirates and more stuff. firm fantasy yeah right Th- i think that coming out just a few months before this did kind of helped sink the idea that it would get more sequels after this point because more people were like no we want that adventure as opposed to this which is kind of a shame i mean adam i'm obviously you would have wanted to have more sequels i assume with everybody here yes but at the same time, really like that it's sort of just this. This is what we got. Because it's so perfect. The potential to have sort of the modern, you know, like Pirates or those type of movies influence the sequels as it went on, to me, would be too great. Um, I like that this exactly what it is. I, and I, I just, I think it's perfect that it's as a standalone. There's no point in me that is like, like, oh my God, what happens to, you know, Lucky Jack next and all that. I'm good. Like, I'm good. I think this is a perfect one and done 
I don't know. I mean, you didn't want the thread of like, oh, we're getting a Peter Miles spinoff movie, 2032. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we, we want the giant, the, the masters of in Commander universe, the MCU, no. as it were. Hey. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think the fact that this is a one and done makes this so special. At the same time, if some benevolent soul dedicated the rest of his life to coding like some sort of like sea of thieves mod where it's just i get to just live in this all day like for a couple hours i would be very very content because this is just such a fun and it's not fun like i like that it, it, it is grimy it is gross like you know when people are like injured and unwell at like the deep bowels of the ship like it doesn't skimp on that but at the same time you're also like singing ditties on deck like with your friends. I think calling this fun is appropriate in a way. Uh, I, I absolutely think so because it is such a level of excitement and sort of, like I said, the swash, almost swashbuckling element of it, even though there's not much of that, but just the, you know, oh man, this is what it could have been like back then. And you're following these sort of characters that you really get to like, and they do have those great moments together. And, you know, even one of my favorite lines of the movie is, you know, who is this man? You know, did I wrong him before in some battle or God forbid, kill his son. And oh, Paul man. Beck, like, he fights just like you. And he you know, gives that little smirk and then walks off. Or even at the end, he's like, you know, we're disguising ourselves from a predator. And he's like, you are the predator. Like, it's just, there's so many good little bits like that. With Russell Crowe and he'll just do this flash of a smile and things like that. Cause it, it's just, it's so fucking good. Oh, and that is a perfect contrast to like the problem that we had with Matthew McConaughey in the last movie, whereas, you know, Russell Crowe's not telling me I am cool. You should like me. He just is because he's kind to his crew, but he's firm and he's decisive. But he's also like, you know, he'll bend to counsel and he'll he'll, you know, all these things where it's like, that's a person. That's a guy that was that you could believe that that was a guy who was sailing the seven seas or whatever. Like that is a real human person who has friends, who has connections like, you know. And there's also those great moments, though, where the the other characters tell you how cool he is without him having to do it himself. 300 feet from him in the night. I mean, that is just brilliant seamanship. Brilliant, brilliant seamanship. I love that, like, whenever Russell Crowe kind of has these moments that you're talking about, Adam, where it's just like someone, he acknowledges it a bit, where it's just like, no, you're the predator. He's just like, well, I guess I am kind of cool. I don't know. That was just duty for me, but I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's so smart of this movie to open with that first battle because since you're thrown into the midst of it you understand like you've already seen him in action so when people are saying like you know this is lucky jack and the men will follow you anywhere what have you you've seen it like that was the first 10 minutes of the movie you you get it you saw this guy getting blown up at and and leading his men and saving them ultimately by getting them out of the fog and all these things so it works it's just like very very neat tidy filmmaking that i hate being like i hate whenever i have to say that but i just i wish we got it more often man i just we need little things like this just little one and dones in these specific settings 
Yeah, and it, it really carries all the way down to, like, that ending montage is so perfect, where it leaves you kind of wanting that sequel that we were talking about, because you got the half the crew going on the other ship, and the other half are staying on this ship, all set to, like, the two of them having their last jam session, where they just screw the the, the bows or whatever, and they're just going, the picking their violins, stuff like that. It's, just, it's such a perfect way to encapsulate, like, everybody is on the ship, and everybody is, like, off on another adventure. It's just like, well, we can't spare any time, we have to, like, go off. This is one of the few movies in the 21st century I would genuinely describe as rousing. Yep. Like, we don't get a movie you could describe as rousing that much anymore. Which, like, immediately like, lifts your stomach up from, like, whatever pit it was in during a suspenseful sequence where it's just like, fuck yeah, I want to sail the seven seas, I want to, like, set the mast or whatever the fuck. I don't know these terms that well. But I just love the fact that it, it inspires that kind of feeling. You want to go on an adventure, which I think ultimately, like, that's like the thesis of the thing. Like, that's what the best kinds of these movies do like you know that like if you put me in the middle of like some some seafaring voyage in the 1800s i am dying of dysentery within like 30 seconds but i like the idea of playing pretend of like yeah throw me into the desert with brendan fraser throw me on this boat with russell crowe and paul bettany like those are the best kinds where it's like i want to be here i love spending time here yeah, in that situation, I think Adam and I are, like, getting our shoelaces tied in the cannonballs, and we're falling overboard. <laughs> That's basically what we're doing. <laughs> Just ridiculous deaths immediately within seconds. Uh, but, yeah, I think we've gone for a while. We should do some uh, final thoughts here. Hale, please, as our guest, uh, final thoughts on Mastering Commander. Um, this is, it's, it's so great. It's not overrated at all. Like I know people sometimes have that instinct when you've heard these, uh, these high praises for decades upon decades. Uh, it's such a great just thing to live in. I regret watching this on a laptop. This needs to be seen on like a huge screen. I'm going to single-handedly fund an IMAX restoration. So stay tuned for that. Cause we, we just, this is just such a fun time. 20th anniversary next year. Get it done. I'll go. Oh, my God. No, stop. Listen, if I could, I absolutely would. But yeah, this is just such a great. Thanks so much for for you guys giving me this push to actually like see it because I'm obsessed with it. Like this is going to be my new. This is a vibes movie for sure. And I don't mean that like in a belittling way. I mean, like anytime it's like rainy and I feel kind of I'm going to throw this on and have a great time. This is just such a fun, fun thing. Well, and Adam, as uh, an OG fan of Mastering Commander, your final thoughts. It's as good as it was, if not better, the first time I saw it. I mean, this movie holds up. It has stood the test of time. Everything about this movie just works. The cinematography, the score, the set design, the costuming, the acting, the stakes of it all. This movie is just a phenomenal, phenomenal adventure movie. And, you know, it's one that does have a lot of fans but it, uh, it's also one of those that sort of got lost at sea. Uh, hey, boom, I'll stop. But um, it, it's just, it's so good that I just, I, I, anybody I know who has seen this on recommendation has walked away loving it. And I hope, you know, because of the show, maybe even if it's one or two more people uh, check it out and can fall in love with it. It, it is that good. Yeah, I mean, I, I fell in love with it in a similar way. Yeah, where I'm just, I felt angry at myself for not seeing this earlier. It's so stellar, it's so fun, and it's, but it still has the amount of like stakes and terror that's there at the same time. And it, 
balances all that so perfectly with really great performances and everybody else. And it's it's one of those great movies where it's like we mentioned, it's despite being like about two hours, 20 minutes long, it breezes by so quickly that it leaves you wanting more in the good way. Where it's just like, oh, fuck, I want to hang out on this boat, though, with you guys. I want to join on the jam session with Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe. I want to be there with everybody. It just does such a great job at that. And like I said, one of the few rousing movies in recent memory. But it's time uh, we did our weekly segment, where every week after we discuss our two features, uh, we do a segment called The Double Redux where every week Adam, myself, and a guest, if they are so inclined, uh, program basically the best and worst possible double feature related to the topic at hand. So each of us uh, has uh, four movies, two good ones, two bad ones, two to recommend, two to not recommend, based in the adventure genre. And uh, Adam, please go ahead first with your choices. All right, so... For my good choices, I have the aforementioned several times, The Mummy with Brendan Fraser and Rich Weiss. Uh, it, it's just one of the most fun movies out there. Uh, easily one of the most fun movies of the last, you know, 25 years. It, it's one of those that if you watch The Mummy and you don't have a good time and you don't smile, then you got to check your pulse because it's so fun and silly. And yet the scares really work. The gore really works when there is gore. Uh, great cast supporting all of them. Like Arnold Vosloo's great. Odette Fair is great. It, it's just a super, super fun movie. It's one of those, anytime it's on, if I come across it, I, I'm definitely watching it. And then the other one I have is a, uh, you know, sword movie, a knight movie. Uh, I have Excalibur. Uh, from God, I want to say the early '80s. It's a uh, huge cast, you know, Helen Mirren, Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson, like all these people show up in this movie, and it is super fun. Uh, it's just magic and sorcery and swords and the Arthurian legend, and uh, it's it's a little hokey by, by today's standards, but I think that gives it a lot of its charm. Still, it's just it's one of those I grew up watching. Uh, my dad was a big fan of it. And uh, it's sort of has stuck with me and made me a fan of it. And uh, again, anytime it's on, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. Uh, for my bad, I have Kangaroo Jack. Uh, anybody remember Kangaroo Jack? No, you don't. Kangaroo Jack was a terrible film about a CGI rapping kangaroo starring Jerry O'Connell and Anthony Anderson as well. And uh, it's about as bad as that description says, if not worse. Uh, dull, 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 crappy comedy that, you know, there's no laughs. A lot of sort of outdated jokes when we were trying to make Jerry O'Connell a star and it, it just didn't work. Uh, it's just a terrible, terrible film. And then my other pick is the Tom Cruise starring The Mummy. Uh, it is such a tone-deaf, stupid movie and also has, you know, Russell Crowe in it uh, as Jekyll and Hyde uh, because he's part of some secret organization or whatever the fuck. This was like, I think, the second or third attempt at bringing, you know, that fabled dark universe to, to life. And uh, it just failed so miserably. I hope that's a dream that's dead uh, because it's just not going to work. And if you need proof, this is it. I mean, it's Tom Cruise. He's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. It's a remake of a beloved movie. Also starring Russell Crowe with updated special effects and action and you know, exotic locales, and, and it just fails 100%. There's nothing redeeming about this movie. Um, well, I'll just say, I haven't seen Excalibur. Um, the Mommy obviously is great. I think we can all agree on that here. 
in contrast to the Tom Cruise mummy, the one with Brendan Fraser is so stellar. And the Tom Cruise one is just, I think, mostly infamous now for just that photo announcing the Dark Universe with everybody photoshopped together so terribly, just like Javier Bardem and Johnny Depp. It's going to be a huge thing that didn't happen. It's a big egg on his face moment. But Kangaroo Jack, I want to speak about because that, as a young person, was such a massive disappointment to me because you said the rapping kangaroo thing. That's what all the trailers advertised. That is a dream sequence in the movie. They advertised it all on a rapping kangaroo, which as a young man, I was just like, oh, of course, this is going to be brilliant comedy. Turns out they it's this really bad crime comedy that was originally shot as like an R-rated comedy. And then they had to re-edit it because it's like, well, the rapping kangaroo, it's going to sell with kids. So let's make it PG and you can tell. And young Tom was just like, what are, it's just the dream sequences, like snow dogs all over again. The dogs were supposed to talk, but it's Cuba Gooding Jr. Let's be 100% honest. This is... By young Thomas, you mean like a year ago when he first saw the trailer. Oh, that's true, yes. Just like, oh man, on YouTube, just randomly showed up. I can't wait for Kangaroo Jack and Snow Dogs. <laughs> Stand by me himself and a rapid kangaroo. This is going to be tight. <laughs> I just need to chime in. You guys are disrespecting the other great thing that Tom Cruise Mummy gave us, which was that early uploaded trailer with all yes. the weird IMAX sounds. And it's just, ugh. Like, th- that is modern art modern art thing is beautiful i watch it all the time <laughs> but i know you're obviously a big fan of like the brendan fraser mommy oh for sure i just showed it to my well i call her my little one but she's my my little sister i just showed it to her the other day she's uh because that's again another one of those it was on tv all the time movies that i grew up watching and i forgot that it can get scary it's kind of like a slasher movie when uh the mummy's putting himself back together and he's scooping up his jars one by one it's just god it's such a fun time there's nothing like it i just i need it on like a 4k like in an altar in my house like it's just so much fun well i'll go ahead with my redo choices here um i have for my good an old classic adventure film and then a more recent one that's a bit more dark and interesting. Uh, the older one I have is The Original Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. We're talking the Errol Flynn classic, Technicolor, big-scale movie, Basil Rathbone's in it, a bunch of other great people. And it's sort of like the everything you think of when you think of an old classic adventure movie with like the swashbuckling element we mentioned earlier, or just a lot of people doing the thing that you see sort of like almost parody by the time you get to like Men in Tights, of people putting their hands on their hips and putting their heads back and laughing like, oh, <laughs> Oh, we have our fun. It's pure classic adventure in a way that's really endearing and charming and just constantly has like great stunt work and elaborate sets and these faces that you can only see in these old Technicolor things like an Errol Flynn or Olivia de Havilland, people like that. Stellar old school adventure movie that I would recommend anybody. Still has a lot of charm to it, despite being, you know, at this point, like 90 years old. Um, and then on contrast, I have uh, The Lost City of Z, which is the James Gray film that stars Charlie Hunnam. And it's about a guy who's an adventurer and has like a crew around him, but it's a lot more grimy and dirty kind of fits into the master and commander terms of things only it's a bit more sort of like intense there's a bit more of like a thriller element with him on this expedition and people are kind of like looking at each other a bit cross-eyed and there's a great side performance from robert pattinson that's really stellar where he's mangy he's got like a big beard and stuff like that it's a really great movie about just like sort of the toll that adventure takes on somebody where you go on these big elaborate adventures and then you try and go back home again and it's almost kind of like a hurt locker thing of just like oh wait 
I'm I've kind of been distant, and these people hate me now. So I have to, like only life is really the adventure at this point. It's a really stellar, interesting movie from that just doesn't really come about that much. It feels almost like a modern David Lean movie. Uh, and then my two bad um, are uh, both very odd ones, where I have uh, one from the late '90s, Almost Heroes, which is sort of like a Lewis and Clark comedy parody of some of these adventure films uh, that stars Matthew Perry, and it was, I believe, one of the last films starring Chris Farley to come out. It came out like a year after he died, and you can tell both of them had had substance abuse issues, and it feels very much like it's a comedy without laughs. It's really dire. There's a pretty good supporting cast around them. It's kind of wasted. Pretty terrible movie that has been forgotten with good reason. And then the other bad one, I have one of the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, uh, this one specifically on Stranger Tides, which this is the fourth one, and a lot of people sort of lump all the pirate sequels together as like failed experiments, but I have a lot more credit and respect for the two that Gore Verbinski did before this, uh, Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, where both of those are at least kind of like ambitious and big and weird in a way that On Stranger Tides and the one that followed, Dead Men Tell No Tales, just aren't. There's none of that like big scale, like fun adventure. It just feels like it's expensive trash. And this one in particular has so much of that where it's like everybody on autopilot and they don't have Kira Knightley and Orlando Bloom anymore. So they replace them with like very generic copies of copies, uh, one of which is a mermaid which is really weird as well, but not exciting. And it's directed by a Rob Marshall, who is no Gore Verbinski. You can tell the entire time. And somehow this awful, boring doll movie is uh, one of the most successful movies of all time because it made over a billion dollars. And uh, that's just a travesty. Uh, you know, I, I sp- speak on yours really quick. I know I've seen the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. It's been forever. I remember liking it. It's definitely something that I want to watch again. Uh, Lost City of Z is one of those that I, I I absolutely think it's phenomenal, and it's one that nobody saw. It's a great movie, and it's probably the best Charlie Hunnam's ever been in anything outside of TV work. Uh, it's great. And yeah, Pattinson, amazing side performance from him. Um, Almost Heroes. Yeah, that's just a bummer of a movie for so many reasons. Uh, like you said, one, Chris Farley's last thing. Two, the substance abuse is clearly running rampant. And it's just, you know, it's unfunny. And ultimately, that's you know one of the biggest problems. It's a comedy movie that garners zero laughs. By the way, I didn't mention this. Directed by Christopher Guest. Yeah. Well, oh, that's even worse. Yeah. It's even God. weirder, yes. <laughs> um, but then, uh, yeah, Pirates uh, 4, you know... The, <sighs> With four and five, they're like, okay, let's take bits that we did in the first one, the second one, the third one, and then let's just roll them together to make this movie. And then, hey, it made a billion dollars. Let's do it again in five. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's terrible. I mean, you know, another one starring Penelope Cruz that we talked about earlier to where the whole bit where she's dressed as Jack and no one can realize that it's not Johnny Depp and it's just laughably stupid and absurd and the whole mermaid stand in with the young missionary like you don't give a fuck also Ian McShane is Blackbeard sounds so great it sounds great it should have been great (laughs) completely wasted I contributed to that gajillion dollar box office and I feel really bad about that (laughs) like constantly which is leading into like when when I get to my picks, it's just like I just I feel bad. I have never seen Lost City of Z, but like I or Zed, as I've heard people call it, but I, it's always one of those that I like I forget that it exists, and then I'll hear someone mention it. I'm like, oh yeah, I was like really like interested in like watching that. I I always forget to put that on my watch list, but I definitely have to like 
look into that because I mean, yeah, like it sounds fun and I like, you know, feral Robert Pattinson. That's always a fun time. Going into like my picks, I felt so bad because m- one of my picks is actually uh, for the good ones anyways, um, is the first Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, which, um, you know, I was very young when it came out, but I watched it a lot when I was a kid. I know people besmirch the Pirates like franchise and, you know, the Johnny Depp of it all is uncomfortable, but that first movie is a lot of fun. Like I, I will ride for it a lot. I really, really like that movie. People talk about it online all the time. The whole sequence, the the skeleton pirate sequence where they're like taking Elizabeth Swan through this like floating haunted mansion and Barbosa hits her with the like, you best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one. It's it's cinema. Like, I don't know what else to say. Like, I'm, I'm weak for that. I love that stuff. That first one is a really good distillation of like a fun romp because it's the only one that knows that we need breaks from Jack and and the rest of them kind of all commit that fatal sin where Jack is like our main character most of the time not that you know Orlando Bloom is is he's fine I don't hate him as much as a lot of people do but he's he's a fun time and I think Kara Knightley's fun in it I'll I love I just love that first one. It's a, it's just, maybe it's the childhood nostalgia, but it's fun. And then my other good one, I just have to shout it out for my older sister, uh, Jumanji. My older sister, she, she's 10 years older than me. So she was definitely like, I, a lot of those movies trickle down and Jumanji is definitely one of them, which I rewatched it in a hotel room recently. The thing is terrifying. It's still terrifying. I'm almost 22 years old. And that is still like, it's just something about it is just, I mean, people talk a lot about like movies in the eighties were just so much weirder than anything made for kids now. But the fact that that is earnestly just a thing that was made for kids. It's like, you're going to sit down and you're going to lose your mind with how scary this is and just how overwhelming all of it is. Like that scene where the, the mansion is like flooding and there's like a typhoon or whatever, like was legitimately upsetting. I'm watching this on this like tiny hotel room TV. And I was legitimately just like, my God, but it's so, it's just so much fun. Like, I don't, like it, it's, it's a classic, but it definitely deserves, like, it's just great. And I love watching Robin Williams and things just, he's fun. It's just a fun, it's a, again, one of those things where that's less of an adventure where I'd like to live in it, but it's such a fun, like thrill ride of a thing. And I mean that not in like the Martin Scorsese MCU things are roller coasters type of way, but I mean it in like a legitimate, genuine thing. It's still scary. It's still effective. And I really like it. And then for my two bad picks, one of them, which like came to me in a dream recently that I remember I even saw it is a uh, Prince of Persia. The Sands of Time, I think, is is the subtitle for it. Ugh. <laughs> which is the movie that people make fun of me to this day because it's the movie that convinced me for a while that had me duped into believing that Jake Gyllenhaal was not a white man. Oh, no. <laughs> I, that movie came out, I must have been like, what, 10, 11? And I was, I mean, the thing is, Prince of Persia. So when they cast Jake Gyllenhaal and he's got like the spray tan and the beard, like the scruff or whatever, I'm thinking like, Oh, okay. So he's clearly, and it was only until I was like 15 or 16 that I realized, oh, I was just, 
I was had and bamboozled and hoodwinked. But Gyllenhaal is such an authentic Persian last name. I'm so <laughs> like, shocked by this. Just like Art- Arterton and Kingsley. Clearly oh my God. No, 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 no. But like, I, I just remember like I sat down in that theater and I was a kid who like going to the theater was like a, I mean, I grew up with like a movie loving household. So I was always very like, I, you know, movies were an expensive outing and I was sitting there and I had this and it was, the and I remember it so clearly because it was the first time I had this thought of like, I want to leave, which had never happened to me in a movie theater before. And so for that, I just have to like, yeah, it's, it's really bad. It's really boring. It's such nonsense. Like there's a magic knife and, and that's all I can really remember, but like, it's just not good. And then my other bad one is, uh, I forget who directed this. I feel like it's somebody that I usually like, um, pan from Joe, Wright. Yes. Good Lord. What happened? But yes, pan which we all had pan fever we all had rooney mara as tiger lily fever right who was clearly an american indian yep oh my (laughs) goodness gracious actually she's persian big shocker (laughs) big big twist twist. (laughs) featuring garrett headland as like you know a weird tumblrification like captain hook that movie is just like there's snippets of that movie that will come back to me every now and again where it's just like yeah when they introduce neverland they introduce it as like slave children mining pixie dust singing nirvana or something like that like it's just it's this weird jukebox musical but it also just looks so hideous and the main kid is really bad and yeah peter pan deserves better like I mean, I also think we should maybe put Peter Pan away for a while just because people keep trying it and it doesn't work. But yeah, Pan is is a hot mess. Like, it's just, oh, man. Yeah, to quickly speak on yours, I, I you know, I think the first Pirates movie still fucking slaps. I think it's great. Thank you. I think you. it's just pure entertainment from front to back. Super fun, great score. Oh, my God. Great characters, good action battle scenes. Jeffrey Rush fucking crushes it as Barbosa. He's so good. Uh, Yeah, I think the first Pirates movie is absolute blast still. Um, Jumanji, I want to say I was like 12 or 13 when that came out. So I don't think it was necessarily for me. Uh, And I, I never really caught on to it. Like, I think it's fun. I think it's fun, but it's not one that I, like, often think of. But, uh, you know. It's okay. I, I think the first of the sequel slash remakes was actually pretty fun. The the Welcome to the Jungle, I thought was pretty fun. The the second one of those was lousy, other than Kevin Hart playing old Danny Glover in a young man's body was kind of fun. Uh, but that, eh, Pan is just dreadful. I mean, it's it's terrible. I saw it once, and I'm hard pressed to remember anything about it really weird costuming on Hugh Jackman as well. Like what was happening there? Um, But then as far as Prince of Persia goes, Prince of Persia to me is exactly how to not make a video game based movie because, Hey, all this stuff in the video game was really fun to play. Well, let's just show it to you. And, and and you're going to remember it be like, Oh yeah, I remember when I actually got to do that in a game. Well, it's fun when you get to do it. It doesn't translate to a fucking movie with some magical knife and, you know, being able to reverse time and blah, blah, blah. And we also forgot about 
the great Persian actor Alfred Molina as well. Oh my um, god, yeah, and all the weird political. I remember like the dagger was just really integral to like some political intrigue that was going on. I'm like, these are video games. What are you talking about? Yeah, because it's garbage. It's a garbage movie, and that's definitely one of the first examples I can think of post pirates where Disney was like, oh, we can just print money making these type of movies, and uh, that was a huge flop. Yet another failed boys, please watch our movies endeavor. Yep, yeah, right. The movie that probably convinced them just like, no, we just need to make these Marvel movies. Uh, that's that's what actually gives money. <laughs> but keep um, that Jillen Hall's number just in case. <laughs> right? Yeah, we gotta have him play Spooderman's Mysterio uh, for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, I echo a lot of the sentiments. Like, I think the first Black Pearl Pirates of the Caribbean is so great, especially considering I was there for like the lead up where everyone was just so doubting it. Just like it's based on a ride, and Giant Depp's doing a Keith Richards impression. It'll never work. And uh, it worked so stupendously then that everyone's been chasing that down to like Prince of Persia and so many other movies still to this day are trying to still do that Pirates of the Caribbean magic that not even the sequels for the most part could really recreate. Uh, Jumanji, I think, is fun, if nothing else, because the the terror kind of works in spite of its kind of like weird datedness. Like those monkeys are terrifying now for a completely different reason than in 95, because those monkeys look horrifying. (laughs) Those horrible CG monkeys are unnerving to say the least. Um, but Williams is having fun and there's a lot of, like, I, I think it really captured when I was a kid, even that sensibility of just like, Oh, what if these creatures were like in your house, like a big spider that could like poison you and you have to like try and get past that or the giant crocodile when everything fills up and shit like that. There's a, there's some fun to like a lot of those set pieces. Um, pan also, that just feels like it's studio notes, the movie of just like, let's combine all these different drafts together and do all this weird shit where we'll have like the Nirvana thing in the same movie where like whenever they go over to Hugh Jackman um, as the the evil pirate captain in his quarters, he's got like a breathing mask on, like he's Darth Vader in his fucking egg thing. Just like, I have to survive on the pixie dust. Yep, the pixie dust is like crack cocaine or something. It's not... Well, <laughs> right, he looks like Nosferatu or some shit. Just like, what the fuck are we doing? What is this? And Garrett Hedlund totally doing an Indiana Jones like impression, trying to be like, you know, Disney, if you ever reboot this, come God on. Bless Garrett Hedlund because he is he's in so many curse genre things. He's an Aragon, which I don't know if any of you oh, have ever seen. Yes, I'm aware of Aragon. <laughs> My God. And then poor guy, Tron was foisted upon him. It's not his fault, but watch it. Watch it. (laughs) No, I love that movie, but I'm saying like, it was like, it's a cursed endeavor for him because nothing really came of it. You know, like it's just Mm that man. But uh, before we head out of the segment, as we usually do, we like to repeat our titles just to make sure everybody got them. Uh, So we'll start and we'll go in the order that we went in previously. Adam, please, your uh, titles just to repeat them. For my good, I had The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, and then I had Excalibur, and for my bad, I had Kangaroo Jack, and The Mummy with Tom Cruise. And then uh, for my two good, I had The Original Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, and The Lost City of Z. And then for my bad, I had Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides and Almost Heroes. And then uh, for my good, I had Pirates of the Caribbean colon The Curse of the Black Pearl, and then Jumanji, the original. And then for my bad, I had Prince of Persia, colon, The Sands of Time, and Pan. 
Yes, and uh, submit your titles, please, to us for the Double Redo, if you have any of them out there in uh, the listenership. Uh, but we have some uh, people we want to thank and stuff before we get to our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. Um, and to thank, we have, of course, Mr. Chris Oliver, who does the intro and outro music for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.pandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water on Twitter uh, to find a link tree and stuff to all his other great artwork. And thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to uh, listen to bonus podcasts we do and vote in polls uh, to, for topics and movies we cover. And uh, there's a lot of stuff coming out around the time of this episode. Uh, this week, you get to vote for an upcoming topic we'll be doing uh, for next month uh, between two comedy subgenres. We haven't done as many comedy subgenres as episodes before, so you all get to pick that. It's between uh, your options of dark comedies or mockumentary films. So you all get to vote on that, and whatever you guys choose over there, we end up doing as an episode next month. And then in terms of bonus podcasts, oh boy, there's a lot of stuff for you to listen to. Um, we'll have an On the Edge of Relevance, uh, which is our show where we cover uh, new movies that have recently come out. Uh, we'll have two new episodes coming out here, where there's one for the new Steven Soderbergh film on HBO Max, Kimmy, and then another one for the Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I'm sure you're all so excited about. Oh, uh, yeah. You're <laughs> Adam the most, yeah. rearing and ready. So- Oh, excited. Oh, fuck. Yes. And then um, we'll also be having uh, an audio commentary. We do like a monthly podcast uh, where we switch off on something. And this month will be an audio commentary where we're doing Roadhouse, the Patrick Swayze movie that we've always wanted to do for the show, but it always kind of fits in either good or bad territory. And we're never quite sure where to put it. So we're like, fuck it, we'll just talk through the whole movie, because there's so much to say. And we found a really fun way to do it, which I'm excited about. Yes, put a pin in that, definitely. Uh, because yeah, 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 that. yeah, yeah. And then also this week, we'll be putting up a little bit of a call to action for all of you uh, edgelord patrons, as we call you, um, for uh, you to help us with our upcoming uh, next bonus podcast in March will be a March Madness Bracket thing like we did last year, uh, where we talked about uh, the March Madness Bracket for movie villains. This time we'll be doing one for the best sequel um, out there, and uh, as we've done usually, there'll be five people on that panel, and uh, all of us have chosen six particular sequels to do uh, to put on the bracket and we're going to seed that but we need two more slots that you patrons get to fill so there'll be a post up at the end of the week asking you all like hey what's another sequel we could add besides the ones that are already mentioned and we'll pick two different ones from all the various comments we would get and uh, we'll credit you on the actual episode of course and it'll be entered in competition it might win who knows whatever you might pick might be crowned the best sequel for our March Brightness bracket yeah we did you all a little dirty last time. Yes, we'll see. We'll see. But we also want to thank uh, our lovely guest, Hale. Thank you so much for being on the show. Please plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. I feel like I've probably talked a little bit too much, but thanks so much for, for dealing with that. Um, yeah, like uh, like Thomas said at the beginning, uh, most of my stuff is on film cred, but I also, you know, I'm freelancing, so you can find a lot of my work on like other places on Fanbyte, on inverse, things like that. Um, I'm on Twitter at the shimmer underscore. So that's all one word, the shimmer two M's and then an underscore at the end. And that's where I am uh, yelling about a lot of stuff lately. It's been uh, between whirl and figure skating at the Olympics, but I'm, I'm good now. I'm calm, but uh, yeah. So that's just where you'll find me. I've, and yeah, thanks again so much for, for having me on. It was a lot of fun. 
never apologize for talking too much. If anything, someone needs to talk over us. We have too much. <laughs> oh God, yes, please. <laughs> please. For the love of God, interrupt us, please. Uh, yes. But <laughs> for more of us, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also submit feedback to us at our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at not the Who's Tommy. And I also uh, do some writing both at marianithomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com, of course. I also write there. And I also want to shout out over on the FilmCred Patreon. Uh, they recently launched a podcast called FilmCred Review, spelled R-E-V-U-E. And uh, I'm not on that show, but I helped produce it. Uh, basically, I was uh, helping to kind of shape what the show is, which essentially our uh, main host, Shay Vassar, uh, gets a guest on uh, to, to talk about some news items and then an individual topic. This first episode, uh, she had on a friend of the show, Jessica Scott, to discuss the 45th anniversary of Suspiria. And that particular episode is free, so anybody can listen to it. And future episodes will come out every two weeks over on the Patreon. And you can listen to it if you sign up for the Patreon for FilmCred for at least just $1. You can listen to further episodes. And I'll be involved in that producerial capacity. I, I want to help give a voice to others out there. So once again, I don't blather on as I do on the show all the time. Like you just did. Uh, you could find me on <laughs> Twitter or Instagram at Atom underscore or underscore Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. Or on Letterbox at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. Yes. And uh, to hear more of our antics, uh, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast. Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the Talk Film Society Network, why not listen to all the other great shows on here? And uh, if you've uh, listened to all those, why not dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for several hours of us blathering before uh, we join Talk Film Society. And if nothing else, if you can't uh, support the show on the Patreon or anything like that, it's totally cool. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around, because that gets us more visibility out there in the algorithms. Yeah, thanks everybody who's been doing it. We really appreciate it. Uh, you know, it helps us a lot. And Christian, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yes, the eternal running joke of <laughs> disparaging our dear friend Christian. But <laughs> it's time we finally end the show here with our picking, as we do every week. Uh, each week, Adam and I uh, each have uh, one of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad movies. We switch up on the quality for that, and uh, we assign numbers between 1 and 10 for each of our choices uh, to get the other person or a guest like Hale to uh, pick number between 1 and 10 for each of our choices, and whichever one that gets closest to of the person's two picks, that gets us our good and the same thing for our bad feature. And uh, keep in mind uh, that we do have something else called the Godfather Rule, where Adam and I were each given a single veto at the end of uh, our, uh, during our last anniversary last May, where um, we have the option, if we hear one of the choices that we've picked after the number two one ten is chosen, and we're like, oh, I don't know if we want to really cover that. Actually, I'll take the cannoli, is the magic word we say, and thus we get whatever the alternate choice was. Uh, Adam has already had his veto used recently. I still have mine burning a, a hole in my back pocket. I got to use before May, before our next anniversary. But I don't know if I'll be using it for a next week's topic, which our patrons, patreon.com slash GEDBpod, shows uh, for a 70s sort of topic. Uh, we ended up with 1977 in film. You know, it's sort of a big year that uh, shaped a lot of cinema to follow. And uh, Adam has the two good choices for that. I have the two bad choices. And Hale, please, for Adam's two good choices, pick number between one and ten. 
Uh, sure. I'll pick the number five. All righty. At number three, I have the, uh, you know, inarguable classic, Burt Reynolds, Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, okay. I have seen this one before. I remember not loving it, but at the same time, you know, I, it could use a revisit. I wouldn't mind uh, seeing maybe if it changes New Leaf. So I'm not going to take the cannoli on that. Fuck. All right. <laughs> at number 10, I had one of the greatest sci-fi classics of all time, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, that that little gem, of course. Yeah, you might have heard of it. <laughs> might have heard of it, maybe. Yeah, you might have heard of it. The biggest sci-fi film of that particular year. No other. Yeah, it's the, it's the one where uh, Richard Dreyfuss plays with potatoes, and I could watch that man play with potatoes for hours. <laughs> yes, of course. Now... Ayo, please, for my two bad choices, pick number between one and ten. Uh, sure. I'll pick the number nine. Oh, boy. I'm very excited. Uh, uh, over at number ten, I have a movie that, you know, by many standards is bad. But I know Adam and I have watched and are so very entertained by. Uh, the star vehicle, I believe the third one at this point, for cinema legend Rudy Ray Moore, I have Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law. Yes! That's a five oh. out of five. Why is that the bad? <laughs> some people might consider it poorly made and ineptly acted, but you know what? We're going to talk so about it a lot. Great. Oh, so uh, yes. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of fun next time. Uh, and then over at number two, I had a genuinely bad one, one that's sort of infamous. I had Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Oh, fuck me. Oh, good Lord. Thank God. Oh. Yes. It's so bland and boring. Yes. Is that the one where they venture into the African continent, land of my ancestors? Yes, and have James Earl Jones in a locust outfit? Yes, indeed, that yes, is the one. Yes, that is the one. Well, well no, we're, look, we're glad we're not doing that. Very glad we're not doing that. But yeah, P.D. Wheatstraw and Smokey and the Bandit next time on the show. That's the kind of fun double feature you get with our show. Uh, and it's time to end this particular episode. And until next time... Let's go on another rousing adventure. Everybody, onto the ship. All right, all right, all right. I've been working on that impression for a long time. <laughs> oh, perfect. Oh, my God. It's like Matthew Kahn is in the room with us. Oh, take a shower. Do you guys like to smoke grass? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>